God is not the God of the dead, but of the living. Matthew chapter 22, verses 31 and 32. Why is it, we would like to know, that God employs this threefold expression when he identifies himself to mankind? What is the significance for us, his children, of these three recurring names? The Apostle Paul assures us that what is contained in Scripture was written for our learning. And here is something which is brought to our attention in both the Old and New Testaments. This suggests that in both the Old Dispensation and the New, God is following one identical principle. In the Old, God appeared to Moses with the intention of calling Israel out of Egypt to become His chosen people. In the New, Jesus appeared in resurrection to the nucleus of a new people of His choice. If now it is true that we who have been saved by His grace are of that people, may we not confidently expect, therefore, that with us He is following the same principle. Again, what does God mean when He speaks today of Israel? Is there a larger meaning in the term that appears on the surface? For the answer, let us look at the end of Paul's letter to the Galatians, where he writes to the new creation in which there is neither Jew nor Greek, chapter 6, verse 15, but where all find their common ground in the cross of Christ. Desiring peace and mercy for all who are Christ's, Paul uses of them the remarkable expression, the Israel of God. I tell you, we who believe in the Lord Jesus are the Israel of God, one with all the true Israel, not a separate people. But further, if God has chosen us to be His own, then we are right to ask ourselves what history we must pass through under His hand to constitute us such a people of God. Surely it is as we study the lives and experiences of these three significant men that the answer to that question will be given to us. For Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob hold a special status in the providence of God, and one not held by any others. Theirs is the privilege of leading us all to God in a unique way. Let us go back to the beginning. As we know all too well, Adam yielded to the temptation to doubt God's love and so fell from his high destiny and came under condemnation and death. In the course which he had taken, all his generations followed him, except Noah. Noah, the exception, was a righteous man and blameless. Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. Yet Noah was one and alone, and we are given no clue as to how God dealt with him to bring him to the place where he walked with God. He was righteous, but we are not told whether God specially chose him, nor how he handled him in order to make him righteous. In this particular matter, therefore, Noah has nothing to teach us, though, of course, there are many other lessons for us in his story. But it is when we come to Abraham that we encounter the first example of a man chosen by God. Abraham was an idolater, but God chose him. Your fathers, including Terah, the father of Abraham and the father of Nahor, dwelt on the other side of the river in old times, and they served other gods. Then I took your father Abraham from the other side of the river, led him throughout all the land of Canaan, and multiplied his descendants. 
Joshua chapter 24, verses 2 and 3. Yes, God chose this idol worshiper, laid hold of him and said, He is mine. According to his will, he chose him. Today, all God's people are like that. They have responded to his love. They have tasted his salvation. And now they find themselves his chosen. God possesses a people whose starting point is his choice of them. Of course, Abraham was not yet a nation, nor was Isaac, nor indeed was Jacob until he became Israel. But when Israel was called out of Egypt, then at last God had a people for his own possession. Thus God's people may be said to have had two beginnings, Abraham the man and Israel the nation. First came the individual men of faith. When these had opened the way, then there followed the...